Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to a special edition of Political Rewind on this Martin Luther King holiday. Um, We are going to spend a good portion of the show uh, talking about uh, a remarkable new exhibition that is now open at the Atlanta History Center. It's called Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow, and it really sparks our conversation today, uh, a perfect conversation, I think, to have on the King holiday. Um, From the History Center is uh, Dr. Kalinda Lee. She's the Vice President of Historical Interpretation and Community Partnerships at the History Center. You've got to be really proud of this exhibition. I I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I have seen all the online materials around it. This is deep and comprehensive. Yeah, we're very excited to be hosting this exhibition. I should say that the exhibition originated in New York with mm, the New York Historical Society in cooperation with the National Museum for the African American History and Culture. That's part of the Smithsonian. Um, so the traveling exhibition um, was a show that we thought we had to bring here to Atlanta audiences. And we've augmented it to really talk about the kinds of things that are especially locally relevant. So we'll be talking a lot in certain sections of the exhibition about what the struggle for black citizenship looked like in Atlanta and in in Georgia generally. Uh, we're joined today also by Dr. Maurice Hobson, who's an associate professor of African-American history. Uh, you have your PhD in African-American and in American history. Um, among other credits, we could talk about your credits for a long time. You're the author of The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. And one of the things people... Uh, have noted about the book and why they find it so important is that we all know if we've been in Atlanta for any length of time about how Atlanta has become, in fact, a mecca for black professionals. I mean, this is the city you want to be in if you are a success in business, uh, in any other number of professions in Atlanta. But your book looks at the underserved African-American population in Atlanta and where the failures have taken place as well. Yes, it, it, it does. Uh, and what I hope to do is just to complicate uh, the fact that there are different black communities. Yeah. And uh, all of these communities have often struggled, you know, under the, the guise of what it means to be American. Uh, and that has put us all together, but there are several different communities and ideas about how things work. And uh, an aspect of that, uh, particularly with the city of Atlanta, is a conversation around civil rights and how Atlanta's often been presented as the cradle of the civil rights movement, but it's not a battleground city. Yeah. And so you have other cities that where actual bloodshed takes place and it produces the different kind of legislation to try to hold the United States accountable in terms of really uh, embodying all aspects of the Constitution. Well, I think it's really important that you just said you are interested in knowing about what it means to be an American. And the reason I'm particularly interested in that is here's how I want to start this conversation. Last year, the New York Times launched uh, the 1619 Project, which was uh, a look at it, it a memorialized, commemorated 400 years since the first slave was brought to America. 
And I want to read just a bit because I think it sets up our conversation. Nicole Hannah-Jones, a staff writer at The Times, did a long, remarkable introductory essay uh, about this project. And I just want to quote from what she had to say. She said, despite being violently denied the freedom and justice promised to all, black Americans believed fervently in the American creed. Through centuries of black resistance and protest, we have helped the country live up to its founding ideals, and not only for ourselves. Black rights struggles paved the way for every other rights struggle, including women's and gay rights, immigrant and disability rights. Without the idealistic, strenuous, and patriotic efforts of black Americans, she writes, our democracy today would most likely look very different. It might not be a democracy at all. I think that's a just an extraordinary statement. And, and so, Clinda, much of the exhibition helps start us walking through what is going to put us on a path for the democracy that she says really didn't come into being until African Americans truly did win their civil rights, in, you know, finally and once and for all, although we still know we have issues. So, okay, all that said. Could we go back to, uh, let's go back before, first of all, when we talk about Jim Crow, what period of history are we talking about? Well, for the purposes of our exhibition, really, we're talking about the period from emancipation, so 1865, the end of the Civil War, through the 1930s. And the reason that we're focused on that specific section uh, of, of history is because one of the things that we often do, to your point, to Nicole's point, is that we don't understand and clearly educate people around the fact that you cannot understand American history without understanding African-American history. Mm. African-American history, the history of enslavement and then struggle for full citizenship and what that looks like and the questioning, the probing of American democracy, all of that is located in a microcosm in the African-American experience. So what we're looking at is this period that is often forgotten. I like to say sometimes you know that people go straight from emancipation to the short civil rights movement in the 1940s as if everybody just kind of sat down and waited in the meantime. And that's not what happened at all. And so we're looking at the ways that people, from the moment that they were free, right, from the moment that that was legislated, said, okay, we're here, we have birthright citizenship, what does that mean, what does that look like, you cannot leave us out of this, and we don't care what you do to try to deny us that right, we're going to fight consistently and fervently and all over the nation. But the period, the Jim Crow period, showed us um, um, movement in a positive direction, but great reversals. Maurice, you said to me as we prepared to do this show something that I thought was uh, really an insightful Comment. You said slavery, I mean, there's nothing worse than being enslaved. But at the same time, the period of Jim Crow, in many ways, was had a heartbreak all of its own because it started with blacks in this country being granted many rights, and then they were stripped away one by one by one. Well, exactly. And <clears throat> as, as Dr. Lee made reference to, I mean, we talk about the long civil rights movement. And the long civil rights movement far precedes 1954. It goes past 1965 or 1968. But you think about an incident in colonial America like Bacon's Rebellion, 
and how that codifies race into law. You think about the 1790s. We better better make sure our listeners know when you mention some of these things. So Bacon's Rebellion was really a class warfare where uh, working class uh, blacks and whites, indentured servants, uh, welled against the white elite in Virginia. And what happens is um, uh, the white elite in Virginia travail. They, they, they emerge as uh, the winners of that quagmire. But what it does is it codifies race into law. And basically what it sa- states is that uh, it puts the onus of servitude on black communities. So mm-hmm. the, the, the way in which America will understand black people is as servant first or as slave first and then, you know, uh, and moving from that. But moving, you know, moving forward, I mean, after the American Revolution, I mean, the issue of the Constitution, 1788 and the passage of the Transatlantic Slave Bill in 1808, that's a civil rights issue. I mean, the 1790 census and who's to be counted and who's not, that's a civil rights issue. You know, 1839, the Amistad Rebellion and citizenship, that is a civil rights issue. Well, I want to add to that. I want to go back before Reconstruction, if I can, and Jim Crow to 1846. The Dred Scott decision... Uh, was the decision in which the United States, it was a, a case of a Missouri man yes. who sued the courts to be freed. Uh, and there's actually, it was two cases rolled into one. Um, but the court ruled against Dred Scott. Of course. And not only did they rule against him because he was not a citizen of the United States on the basis that he right. was not, but they went a step further. They said black people cannot ever be citizens in right. the United States, right? And That's they have cor- no rights that a white man would ever respect. That's correct. And and so I think it's wonderful that you start with Dred Scott. Actually, the exhibition starts with Dred Scott because that's kind of the underpinning of this um, legal first explicit struggle to say we are citizens and this is what this looks like and the court answers that question um, and to take us back into that I'm so glad you went where you went more uh, Maurice because the issue of codifying black folks as perpetual servants um, in this nation is really in many ways what Jim Crow is about so after emancipation when people say we want political rights we want to have a right to education we want to have you know all of the things that we think about when we think about citizenship uh, the white society, both North and South, responded by legislating against that. And some of that was certainly uh, focused on the kind of separate but equal, theoretically, mm-hmm. um, uh, segregation policies that people tend to associate with Jim Crow. So when you say Jim Crow, people think about black and white water fountains and schools and et cetera. But if you really look at the underpinnings of that, what essentially all of that legislation is saying is what we are going to do is find ways to ensure that African-Americans remain in a perpetual state of servitude as long as they are in this country. Okay, so we, we, let's take Dred Scott as a starting point, 1846. The Civil War uh, takes place. We know that it was a struggle uh, initially to keep the South from leaving the Union, but of course it became a fight uh, about the South de- uh, determined to maintain mm-hmm. uh, uh, slavery as an institution. We get, so okay, we're going to skip the war itself and go to the end of it. Right. 1865, uh, President Lincoln has already, uh, of course, uh, earlier than that, 1863, Three. the Emancipation Three. Proclamation. Three. Uh, uh, it, so he's already taken that bold move. But by 1865, 
uh, he is uh, declaring that uh, slavery needs to be abolished in this country entirely. And then he's killed. Right. If I get, well, and the, the thing that comes from this, though, and this is where the, the conversation around isms is prejudice plus the use and the abuse of power. So this is an issue of power. We, we, we have to think, about, think of it in this way, particularly during Reconstruction. You have the 13th Amendment, which abolishes servitude, the 14th Amendment, which is the actual amendment that makes America or the United States America. It is equal protection and due process under the law. That's absolutely right. We did not have a democracy until all people had freedom and, 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 and equality. And that was done so to include black people. Yeah. That, that amendment is for black people. Then you have the 15th Amendment, which grants uh, universal suffrage for men at the time. But that brings in these particular things, citizenship and voting. And it is during this time where the majority black population living in the former Confederacy in the American South are able to establish aspects of black political empowerment and electoral politics in states like Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, those with those large black populations, Georgia, Alabama. And so what we see here is when black people are able to vote on their own terms and promote their own self-interest, there is a moment. But then there's a plan in 1875 called the Mississippi Plan on how do you disenfranchise black folks so that they won't have the rights. Okay, don't get ahead of the narrative, all right, all right, my bad. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, seriously, yeah. because you're gonna, we're going to get to that. Yeah. But before we do, let's say that in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, when the South was basically without governance, when much of the, much of the South was in a certain amount of disrupt, I mean, federal, the federal government right. came into the South. Occupied. And mm-hmm. occupied the South and presumably was there to enforce the new equal rights that uh, blacks had in, in, in this country, right? Yeah, so I want to reframe a little bit because Good, I think please. that when we talk about this period of chaos immediately following the Civil War, there is a tendency, particularly in the South, to just regard Reconstruction as a failure and to lump the, the Reconstruction process into that sense of chaos and, and political disarray. In fact, by 1868, say, in the state of Georgia, African-Americans were participating in many ways in elected oh, yeah, government. I, I would say you're, it's not a failure until the North abandons the indeed, South. Indeed, exactly. indeed. And so when that, when that deal is struck, when that compromise is yes. made, one of the first things that happens here, for example, is that the three African-Americans who are serving in the state legislature are expelled, expelled from the floor of the state legislature in 1868. And in the speech to expel them, one of the questions that is begged is the question of whether they are in fact citizens. And so the question that is raised is that just because they're emancipated, just because they're free, doesn't necessarily mean that they're citizens. And a legal argument is actually made on the state house floor to justify excluding African-Americans categorically from service in any elected office. They're expelled. They go to the the federal government, um, to the president, and then um, to to allies in the Senate. And they say, you know, we need you to essentially make good on this promise and come back and reinstate us. And they're reinstated for a very brief period of time. Mm -hmm. But during that brief period of time, local legislation is put in place to make the, the, the ballot 
again, inaccessible. So we have kinds of things like poll taxes mm-hmm. or we have things like literacy, literacy tests and yeah. all kinds of things to keep people from the ballot because they recognize that power is in the vote yeah. and power is in representing yourself. Um, so that's when we start getting toward what you yeah, started of to course. point to. You've got Andrew Johnson in the White of House, course. who's a Southerner. And he's impeached, too. Yeah. And he, yes, exactly. <laughs> Andrew Johnson is a Southerner. He has no, there's no thought in his head that blacks should be treated equal to, to white, is, 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 with equality. But he also is afraid, presumably, that he can't afford to lose the Southern vote, that he needs to hold on to Southerners. Whatever his reasoning is, you started talking about all of these advances that are coming right after the Civil War are slowly now, and maybe quickly in yeah. some cases, being rolled back. And they are, and they're being done so, um, not just by the states. I mean, I mean, of course, you know, this conversation around states' rights, and but it's also the Supreme Court. I mean, there's several court cases: the U.S. versus Reese, uh, the Cruikshank case. There are all of these court cases that are working to really dismantle or to undermine the U.S. Constitution, and the U.S. Supreme Court is doing this. So there's always this conversation around what the American South is doing, but this is an American problem. Yeah. Yeah. And and one of the things that, that I find to be atrocious is I am known to argue that slavery is horrible, but the calculated ways in which the United States and the states decided once rights were granted, how to systematically take them away, that shows you the culture, it shows you the character of how America, the the idea of American democracy can be compromised. I would certainly agree. I'm gonna pivot a little bit to add um, a different dimension to this conversation. While the kinds of things that we are describing are absolutely atrocious and have lingering, Mm -hmm. long lingering, 100-year lingering Mm -hmm. impacts, uh, one of the things that we often don't talk about, even when we explore these issues, is the fact of African-American agency during those periods in order to agitate for their rights, right? And so one of the things that's really deeply important, particularly in the South, where there is this notion of black Southern complacency is to understand the ways in which even when we talk, even when we talk about Southernness, right? I've heard people say things like, um, well, you have to be careful about Southern sensibilities or Southerners think X way and Y way. And I always say the people who are most disproportionately Southerners are black folks, are black, right? They, they, By yeah. definition and the reality of populating this nation, the people who are disproportionately in this generation or at least one or two generations removed are black folks. And so black folks were utilizing whatever apparatus they could, some of what lingered from Reconstruction, right? So things like establishing schools and such, other kinds of work around creating organizations to continue to agitate continuously, which is phenomenal to me, over 50 years for voting rights and to keep trying to put people forward for office and to keep trying to register to vote and all of those kinds of things. I'm going to pause the conversation for a moment because we have to take a break right now. But when we come back, I I do want to talk about Mm -hmm. that period after, say, 1877 moving forward when when we're well aware of the atrocities that began to be committed in the South, which continued well into the 20th century. But we should also make the point, as you already have, Maurice, um, the North was not exempt. It may have not had the same uh, look and feel, but this was an American problem, not just a Southern problem. We'll talk about that when we come back. 
We're uh, talking today on this Martin Luther King holiday with uh, Maurice Hobson, an African-American studies professor at Georgia State University, and Kalinda Lee, who is a historian who uh, uh, is here because the History Center right now has this remarkable new exhibition, Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow. Um, okay, before we go to the next step, I think I didn't know this, and, and I'd love for you to talk about it just briefly. I've never understood what the why Jim Crow. What is Jim Crow? Where does that label come from? Who wants to go with that? Well, I, I can talk about it. So, um, within the antebellum period, the the um, the, the cotton period, uh, there was this movement in terms of promoting ideas around black inferiority through popular culture. Yeah, uh, minstrel shows and several characters: Zip Coon, Jim Crow, Sambo, Mammy, Jezebel. All of these different uh, figures that were promoted and, and really produced by white ethnics who were trying to work work their way to being white. But Jim Crow is one of those characters, and um, he, he's like a, a fictional he's character a fictional that character. whites, yeah. often in blackface, it, exactly right. created Crea- a minstrelsy character and yes. yeah, minstrel shows. And he's he's country, and he has a slick cousin who's Zip Coon. And I mean, you know, most of the depictions uh, would remind you somewhat of the Scarecrow off of you know the Wizard of Oz, um, but you know, purportedly a slick, you know, unkept. Uh, dim-witted uh, individual who really needed to be put in uh, a system of control so that they could be maintained. I think, you know, I, I actually, when I was preparing for the show, I, I, I thought, I went online and I thought, let me find some examples of minstrels who are in that mode. I wouldn't even play those on the radio anymore. They're so thoroughly offensive. But Kalinda, they, they, were, they were entertainment for the white people of the day, but they were also, as Maurice points out, inten- there was a political message, an intentional effort to get across the point that blacks were inferior. Indeed. There was a point to get across the, 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 method, uh, the message that blacks were inferior and therefore unfit for the same rights as, as whites. And I would say that you know, some, sometimes we're familiar with these, these Jim Crow kind of stereotypes, right, that suggest that black people were dim-witted and not capable Mm -hmm. of the responsibilities of American citizenship. But there's also something else that's pernicious and insidious about this, and that is that there's also this characterization of African-Americans as being people who will misuse those rights if they get them and who will kind of throw the train off the track um, or even who will behave in ways that are criminal, like think, you know, birth of, of a nation of where the Klan had to come in and kind of save folks yeah. from, mm. um, you know, difficult, malicious, malevolent African-Americans. And so Jim Crow is also wrapped up in that, this notion that this effort to control African-Americans saves white folks from black domination. And in fact, that was Negro domination Mm -hmm. was a term that was Mm -hmm. often used as the purposes of um, the reasons why these laws had to be instituted. It was like a salvation of Western. One of the most pernicious thing that comes out of that, I think it's safe to say, is the emergence of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of 1880, around that period? Or is it earlier than that even that the Klan came along? It doesn't really matter. It's in that late 19th. Century. Yeah, it's right. not. It's not before the. It's not during the Civil War per right. se. There were right. organizations, but right. there is a point where it, right. uh, black domination or Negro domination becomes a threat. 
Okay. And that's how it was organized. And also the fact that this kind of violent repression of African Americans, while certainly we think about the Klan now, that has underpinnings before that. And I saw you kind of thinking about yeah. the, the dates because we know that this, you know, that the... the the reality of night riders, for example, and people going out mm. to stop African Americans from participating in political office and that kind of thing. That happened immediately after the Civil War mm -hmm. um, was over. Um, one of the characters, um, the historical characters that's featured in the exhibition is Tunis Campbell. Mm -hmm. And Tunis mm -hmm. Campbell uh, was a legislator from the state of Georgia. In fact, the senior most African-American right. legislator in the Republican Party. They were all Republicans um, at that time, Lincoln Republicans. Mm -hmm. And Tunis Campbell writes in his book of my sufferings in the state of Georgia about the ways in which um, these vigilante groups, if you will, were riding on him and his people on the coast of South Carolina right. in 1868, 1869, saying, you get back in those fields and work oh, and, and don't go vote and don't participate in these other kinds of enterprise. Because there was also a real pushback against black business owning and other forms of kind of uh, self-expression and independence. And so this is where the heartbreak begins, isn't it, Maurice, what you talk about? that here you are, freed, given the opportunity to be treated as an equal, and, and one, one by one, the, not only are rights stripped away, but you're and certainly in the South, you, you face physical harm for any attempt to exercise any of those rights. That is correct. Um, but you also see resistance. Okay, that's yeah. what I thank you because and, we should talk about that because that goes back to what Kalinda said. <laughs> this is not as if blacks in this country were somehow passive during exactly. that time, allowing things to happen. Go ahead. And I'll often, I, I mean, you think about this in, as a state of mind. Wherever you see the most oppression, you see the most resistance. Oftentimes, the top-down model of history will always talk about the the oppressor, but there is always resistance. What we, what we begin to see here are, are several levels of, of resistance. I mean, uh, Dr. James Anderson wrote a book, The Education of Blacks in the South, that looks at the political football of education and how black people had to take that on, their, take it, take that on themselves because they could not trust a system uh, that had mistreated them. Uh, but also you see uh, armed uh, groups, mil uh, military clubs. They call themselves military clubs. Uh, one of the most famous comes out of Louisiana later on, the Deacons of Defense, but that was a characteristic, particularly of rural, the, the rural South, and, and black folk were in rural areas. And so there would be armed resistance. So it, was, it wasn't as if the Klan was just riding on these communities and just coming out unscathed. I mean, uh, black folk were shooting back. Uh, black folk would lynch. They, they would lynch whites. There, there's a whole series of literature on this kind of work. And then black folk were organizing politically and looking at different ways. And then they were voting with their feet. They would they would leave the American South. Uh, and we also have uh, leaders, really strong, powerful civic leaders emerging during this time. W.E.B. Du Bois around 1900. Mm -hmm. uh, Indeed. Indeed. And, and I think that when um, we think about resistance, we have to think about it in a really broad way. So you talked about, for example, education as a form of resistance. Here in Atlanta, yes. you know, we have the largest uh, complex of African-American serving colleges and universities in the nation to this day. The and world. they still disproportionately educate the uh, an overwhelming number of black professionals to this day. Uh, your uh, exhibition also talks about a woman in Atlanta named Maggie Walker. Mm -hmm. 
Maggie Walker had the Atlanta Neighborhood Union. Is that right? She was responsible for helping, for encouraging the establishment of black businesses, banks, insurance companies, and uh, apparently had a, a tremendous impact on, uh, on all of it. I got it wrong? Well, Maggie Walker, um, we think about with regards to New York. I think the person oh. that you have in mind is Lugenia Burns Hope. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Lugenia Burns Hope, yeah. okay. um, who is often footnoted as yes, the wife of, of John, John Hope, <laughs> who was the president of Atlanta University. Oh, but okay, in fact, Lugenia Burns Hope was an incredibly learned woman yes. who founded an organization called Neighborhood Union. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it, what I was yes, thinking that's about. That's what you were thinking about, yeah. right. All right and Neighborhood Union, these people came together and said, listen, the, the city and state aren't interested in the social service needs of African-Americans, but we are disproportionately underserved. You know, we don't have proper sewerage in our Mm -hmm. neighborhoods. We don't have streetlights when they came around. We don't have social welfare organizations that are funded by the state. We are going to take care of this ourselves. They had kindergartens Mm -hmm. when there was no such thing as free kindergarten. For goodness sake, we didn't even have a free public school for African-Americans to go to high school until 1924. but, but, But Neighborhood Union was setting up kindergartens and such. And so... Absolutely, we think about a broad swath. There was protest art that was coming out of these schools and other parts of mm-hmm. the community. Um, there were lots and lots of ways where people were constantly engaging around their fullness. I like to say when we talk about civil rights a lot and citizenship mm-hmm. rights, people were engaging around their full human rights. Right. I want to make a statement, though, because I, I don't want to let this get off the hook. We also have to talk about Atlanta's role, mm. the actual Well, and that's something you have really uh, <laughs> but, researched more than it, a lot of others have. But the codification of separate but equal, like the, the national conversation. I mean, 1895, the Cotton States and International Exhibition, when Principal Booker T. Washington of Tuskegee delivers uh, the keynote address and, 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 state, and it's later known by Du Bois and John Hope as the Atlanta Compromise, but it was the speech in Atlanta and, and, until both Hope and Du Bois were considered to be, you know, the, the juggernauts that they, that they become. But it's there where Booker T. Washington states, cast down your buckets, and he's really promoting this idea of business, and he uses the, you know, he, he says something to the extent of, in all things, you know, um, social and political, we can be as separate as an open hand, and all things economic, we can be equal. And when, with the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling, that is the language that is actually used. And so I often tell, I often have to think about how there are ways in which we talk about inclusivity, the language that we use, how that can be used sometimes to work against the, the people that you are actually trying to empower. And so uh, that language comes out of Atlanta in Piedmont Park. And it sets Which is where the Cotton States it, exhibition it, took place. Right. Mm-hmm. And it sets the precedence for the United States being one of two countries that had state-supported, sanctioned apartheid or, or segregation. Mm-hmm. And you know what's interesting also about this, and here's the rub, at the exposition, uh, Booker T. Washington delivers this, this, this speech, and it is roundly applauded of by course. the white community, of right? Course. Be separate and don't, sure. don't fight for political rights, but focus on economic achievement mm-hmm. um, that can theoretically lift all boats, mm-hmm. right? And then at the same time, we have 
Ida B. Wells That's right. writing about how one of the reasons that African-Americans are targeted by lynch mobs and organizations like the Klan is because they are focusing on economic uplift. So there is this narrative. Yes. Think about Jim Crow and Zip Coon and these negative caricatures. There's this narrative that the reason that people are lynched is because black men just have this kind of insatiable lust and violence in them and are attacking white women. I mean, that is, in fact, what the press is putting out again and again in cities all ar around not only the, the South, but the nation. And then Ida B. Wells interrogates this as a journalist, and she says, nah, the reason That's that right. you're coming for us is because we are actually kind of trying to make good on this promise. And when we're seen as competition, then you blow us into oblivion or hang us from a tree. Think even, you know, Tulsa and, and the bombing there. So you, you kind of, you know, are... Yes. Kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Exactly, and they and, and the Du Bois Washington kind of conversation is often misguided in how it works because I mean, economic um, liberation in particular ways creates a particular kind of safety net. I mean, you know, self determination. And Booker T. Washington is often credited as you know misguiding and misleading, but it takes all kinds. I do want to say this, though, in terms of Atlanta and, and the whole conversation around segregation. When Washington delivers that keynote, two of the most interesting uh, telegraphs that he receives are from Du Bois and Hope. And I may not have the words correctly, but I think Du Bois's uh, telegraph stated, you know, a hearty congratulations on your success in Atlanta. It did. And in fact, it said the first line was, it was a word fitly spoken. Now imagine this, when later Du Bois dubs that speech, yes. the Atlanta Compromise, yeah. and these two men have... Uh, you know, a contentious relationship for the rest of Washington's life as a consequence of that, right? Yes. So what that I think also pinpoints is not only the reality of multiple strategies of, um, of, of struggle, but also of this evolving yes. thinking about the forms that this struggle should take, right? So people are not just being ideologues. They're also pragmatists. Exactly. Um, and, you know, and I would add one more thing to that. You know, recent scholarship has indicated that while Washington was telling folks not to fight for their civil rights, he was secretly funding the NAACP. It, so how about that? Yes. <laughs> I, and, 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 and that shows that shows the complicated nature of, of, of folk. I mean, like they support their people and their community. So you can't always pay attention to what they actually say, you know. It's... I've got to get to a break, but but I said before we took our last break that I wanted to make sure we uh, at least gave uh, lip service to the fact that the struggle for equal rights is an American str struggle, a national struggle. We tend to focus on the South because of the most egregious uh, 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 things that happened here. But um, I'll tell you a quick personal story. I The last... Uh, um, news event that I covered before I left Chicago to come to Atlanta was the campaign that Harold Washington ran to become the first African-American mm -hmm. mayor of Chicago, which, of course, he won. But we would campaign with Harold in, in white neighborhoods, working-class neighborhoods, and, and people would throw things at us. It was dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it exposed the racism in Chicago in, in a very vivid way. And after that was over and, and he had won... I announced that I was moving to Atlanta to work at WSB-TV. And my Chicago friends came to me and said, you're not going to go. Are you going to go live in racist Georgia? What are you talking? 
And my response was, well, I'm sure they got problems, but did you all just live through the same mayor's race? <laughs> right. Right. Listen, all day, every day. And so one of the things that um, sometimes we joke, um, you know, somewhat bitterly in African-American communities about living up south or down south. Exactly. Um, because when we think about, for example, the red summers of race riots, mm -hmm. we're not just looking at southern cities. We're talking about Chicago. Sure. Yeah, we're talking sure. about the kinds That's of right. attacks that took place against black folks in Detroit, in Tulsa. And to some extent, one of the things that we have to be honest about is that there was a critical mass of black population in the south. Exactly. And when there was a tipping point pass and there became critical masses of black folks in other cities throughout the the north and west and midwest you see the same exactly. kinds of um, of, of reactionary and often kind of hateful efforts to suppress yeah. African-Americans. Well, the other quick thing I'll say, uh, Maurice, is that uh, before we break, um, I'm very, very happy about the fact that over 35 years here, Andy Young and I have become pretty good friends. Yes. And Andy loves to kid me, but he's being serious yes. about the fact that when he was marching with Dr. King, uh, the scariest moments of anything they did happened not in Alabama of course, of course. Uh, or Mississippi, but marching in Cicero outside of Chicago. Chicago, right, <laughs> by Midway Airport. You, you know, um, but that's, that's oftentimes been the narrative. Uh, my, my own experience, I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois. I knew where I was when I would be in the American South. I knew where to stop, where not to stop. And I mean, that green book still exists in a lot of ways. But I would not stop in the Midwest until I would get to cities. I mean, Champaign to Paducah, Paducah to Nashville. Wow. And then I, I, would, I would feel somewhat comfortable. Right. I got to get to a break. Gotcha. Um, when, we, <laughs> when we come back, let's, let's move a lot forward. There's yeah. so much in this exhibition we could talk about. But with the limited time we have, I want to move forward. And I want to take a look at where we are today. Um, and what we might learn from this exhibition about where we still need to be. So you're listening to Political Rewind on this King holiday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this special Martin Luther King Day edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I am the only person in this studio who is old enough <laughs> was alive when Dr. King was fighting his battles. And, and since we can't uh, walk through everything that the exhibition tells us about, the, uh, about Jim Crow and the fight beyond Jim Crow well into the 20th, 20th century um, and even today, I, I do at least want to take a few minutes to talk about the, the legacy of Dr. King. So, Kalinda, let me start with you. You were not even born when it's Dr. Not. King was marching when he was fighting uh, for the civil rights of black people here. So when you start to learn his story, I just a personal reflection on how it struck you. Well, you know, I'll start actually by talking about a moment in my childhood, a uh, brief moment in my childhood when my family was living here in Atlanta. Um, and during that time period, the, the struggle to have a King holiday was full on, yeah. um, and there was massive resistance um, at the federal level um, to pass that legislation. But my parents kept me home from school. So every year, I knew I had that day, and we considered that day a day of service and inspiration way before it was legislated. Um, and one of the things that my mother used to say to me about that is, we don't need permission 
to be inspired by the struggle that came before us and to continue to do this work. In fact, you'll never get permission to continue to do the work that you have to do that's most entrenched. I remember that vividly when I was in the third grade. Um, For us at the Atlanta History Center, Martin Luther King holiday is one of our biggest visitation days. It's a free day. Uh, we have loads of programming, um, and it's really developed for every age and, and, and sort of audience. And what we are hoping will come out of reflecting during the King holiday about this past is that people will understand the ways that their neighbors lived and develop some empathy for those things and the kind of underpinnings that created the, the society that they live in now, that they will learn from strategies that people employed the, in the past to make change and that they will be inspired to continue the work and to march on because the work is not done. <laughs> wow. Maurice, you too. Yeah. You learned about Dr. King uh, after he unfortunately was already gone. And, 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 and this is an interesting conversation. Uh, I can't remember the first time I heard the name of Dr. King because it was, it was, I remember the reverence, but I do remember the first time I felt the, the, the brunt of his legacy. I was nine years old when the first Dr. Martin Luther King Day celebration was actually celebrated. And I grew up in Selma, Alabama, and I can remember the burden of it. It was so melancholy to me. My mother, who was a social studies teacher who had advocated for the teaching of black history, had taught us that Megan Evers had been murdered, Malcolm X had been murdered, and Dr. King had been murdered, all for fighting for the injustices of black folk. And here we were on a gray Monday at First Baptist Church in Selma, Alabama, But what I learned from that is that I had to, in order to deal with that burden of blackness, I had to thoroughly immerse myself in black history. And while in college, uh, my first job was I was an intern for the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. I did curatorial work and education work for the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And I was forced to learn about a new kind of king. And of all of the studies that I'd done, I mean, I grew up in Selma, Alabama. I knew the Reverend Dr. F.D. Reese. I knew Gene Jackson. These were my teachers, Uh, Miss Annie Mae Cooper. I knew all of those folks. What was most inspiring is working at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and watching the world come to Birmingham to learn about the Birmingham campaign and King. And it's interesting because what I learned during that point is King's trip to Berlin and how he's able to talk about the comparisons between African-Americans in the United States and the wall that divided East, East Berlin from West Berlin. I learned about how after King's death, Uh, In Ireland, the civil rights movement, King is the catalyst. So one of the things I've learned in this process is as someone in the black community, we have to let King's legacy be shared by all because they see him in different ways. I'm not saying that we negate where he comes from, but there is so much to learn in terms of humanity. And so I've learned to deal with the burden of being black by studying the humanity of Dr. King. You know, Bill, I want to add something to that because sure. I'm, I'm really thrilled that you asked that question. It's sparking some some memories for me. Um, and one of the things I think is that we should consider is the way in which King's history, King's story, and the way that people responded to him has been rehabilitated again and again. Right? And so, you know, <laughs> the reason that there was a resistance to this federal holiday is because he was not generally embraced of across course. the American population, mm-hmm. right? right? People um, people talk about, 
you know, being in spaces where they remember when when his death was announced on the news and everybody broke down crying. And people talk about being in spaces where when his death was announced on the news, everybody broke out in applause in a restaurant, at a bar. I mean, you know, this is and, and all across the nation. And so while we kind of universally more or less, talk about Mm -hmm. King as a hero. Now, that was not always the case. And there have always been efforts to push back against um, reframing the way we think about his work. An example that I want to mention to you is the first year that, I'm a little bit older than Maurice, um, the first year that um, the, the national holiday was celebrated, in my memory, I was in high school. And I lived at that time in Asheville, North Carolina. It's up in the mountains. We get some snow in the winter. (laughs) And so it's January. And the school board decided that we weren't going to celebrate that holiday because we had had too many snow days. And a classmate came to me. I'd like to say it was my idea, but it wasn't. A classmate came to me, a good friend and classmate, Deirdre Trinomas, and she said, we cannot let this be. If we let this be this time, it will be this way forever. And a seven, she was a 17-year-old girl, and she and I started circulating petitions. We did not get assistance from our public school principal or teachers. They were not behind us. Mm-hmm. We did not get assistance from the African-American clergy and leaders in Asheville until we called a press conference and essentially put everybody on the spot. Are you going to support the kids or not? And then there was an emergency meeting. And at the very last minute, the school board said, all right, we're going to give you the holiday. This is not one that we can take off the books because of snow days. But that was 19. <laughs> that, was, that was 1987. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah. is kind of a wake-up call. That's stunning. If you want to ask the question of, are we there yet? The answer is pretty clearly no. Exactly. I, I do want to say, though, to keep the record straight, uh, it, it isn't just that King has been, his uh, legacy has been embraced in far wider communities than it ever was when he was alive. But we also have to say that in the African-American community, there was a rehabilitation process as well. I mean, during King's nonviolent civil rights Mm -hmm. days, there were young African-Americans particularly who were vehemently opposed to the way that he was conducting his campaign for uh, civil rights. I covered the Black Panthers a lot in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and I had enormous respect for the way they went about their business, free health clinics and community activities. But they were not fans of Reverend King in those days. Uh, well, I'll, I'll add to that. that. And that's what I was saying when, as an intern at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute that I was forced to learn about Dr. King because my orientation would have been more um, defensive. And, 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 of course, Malcolm X is always presented as being violent, but he was, he was, he was talking about defense, not violence. But um, I learned so much about King, and I also understood the philosophical approach in terms of the Satyagraha and how this worked and the Christian love. I mean, he's a complicated figure, um, but uh, the fact that he gave, he paid the ultimate price yeah. uh, for humanity, it cannot, I, we cannot take that away from him. Right. No, of course not. Oh, no. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, right. yeah. That's why we're here today. Of course. And, and to your point about him being complicated— we also have been given often a narrative about King, right? A portrait of King that is not a full portrait, is often a very flat character. Uh, and so it's important as we think about King's legacy to also consider that too. He became increasingly radical 
over the course of his life. He connected civil political rights with economic struggle and this point um, of of making sure that we are serving the least of those right. even within our communities um, when he was killed he was for goodness sake you know there in Memphis on behalf of striking sanitation That's workers right. and that is mm-hmm. often forgotten and so it was about voting and it was about equal housing and it was about all that but it was also about making sure that there was equity and access to the American promise. You know, I want to ask one last question because we're running out of time. And I'm not sure, Kalinda, because you were here as representative of the History Center, how far you want to dip into politics right now. So I'm going to start with you, Maurice. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll answer. Um, how, how, how much do you—are you, you f- fearful, as, as many people are right now, that, we're, that, that minorities in this country are losing, are, make, are, are going backward— uh, during the present day that we're living in politically? Or is progress still happening and we need to celebrate it? I, I, I won't use the word fearful, but I am cautious. Uh, I, would, I used to tell my students until 2016 that if you heard the word states' rights, you should run for cover, like you should be able to organize and fight against. And then 2016 took place, and now you have someone at the federal level that is exacting policies that flatten the rights of people, all kinds of marginalized people. And as a result of this, now we must use states' rights to organize to protect us from that. I, I think that there's a lot has been flattened. I think that uh, democracy is under threat, uh, and it is very clear. But I also have to have hope. And uh, the United States is, has had worse situations, but what, I, what I'm saying is is that we must educate and organize. Yeah. I, thank you for, I, hope is really a word we want to use, I think, today, um, and, and put the politics, uh, the partisan <laughs> politics aside. I want to, um, as we come to a close here, I want to uh, go back for just a minute to the essay that Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote for the New York Times. She, she points out that, uh, you know, when we know this to be true, President Lincoln at one point thought the solution to the problem of blacks in America was to offer them the opportunity to go back to Africa, and they rejected it. And here's what she says about that, that the formerly enslaved did not take up Lincoln's offer to abandon these lands is an astounding testament to their belief in this nation's founding ideals. As W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, quote, few men ever worshiped freedom with half such unquestioning faith as did the American Negro for two centuries. That is a remarkable thing to think about on this uh, King holiday. Glenda Lee from the Atlanta History Center, black citizenship in the age of Jim Crow is open now for people to come see. Uh, Maurice Hobson, Georgia State University, uh, thank you both so much for being here as we uh, use today to reflect on Dr. Martin Luther King. I want to close the show today with uh, the black, the African-American national anthem. And I looked Wonderful. for a number of different versions of it, but this one really struck me. It's by an acapella group, uh, young men at Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, and here they are, the group is called Committed. And as we go out, here they are singing, lift every voice and sing. Sing to earth and heaven ring. 
Skies resound.